0: Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast, Season 7, Episode 1.
1: You get your degree, you get your certifications, uh, get as much experience as possible, um, either as a GA, an intern, work for free, whatever it is, you need that experience, and then you need to network, network, network. But the big thing is you got to show the athletes you care. This is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast, where we talk to strength and conditioning coaches about what you really need to know but probably didn't learn in school. There's strength and conditioning, and then there's everything else.
0: This is the NSCA Coaching Podcast. I'm Eric McMahon. Our guest today is the longest-tenured strength and conditioning coach in professional sports history, Bill Ferran. He's been a member of the NBA Miami Heat since 1988, when the Heat, along with the Charlotte Hornets, entered the league as expansion teams. Currently, he's a consultant with the team after serving decades as the team's head strength and conditioning coach, a position now currently held by his son, Eric Ferran. Bill, I ran into you at the most recent RSCC reception at the 2023 NSCA Coaches Conference before you gave your keynote lecture. It's great having you with us here on the podcast.
1: Thanks, Eric. Glad to be here.
0: Yeah. So for anyone who missed that keynote, you were talking about lessons of a veteran strength coach, a session that we've gone back to a few times in the last few years, just bringing in some of our our legend coaches who have done great things in the profession over many years. Uh, Give us a snapshot of what you talked about. Oh, I
1: told stories of four decades in the profession but i i started with where i started and when i graduated from college i was teaching elementary phys ed and coaching at the high school smallest school in the conference hadn't had a winning season in years and i'm looking at our athletes and i'm thinking we got to make them better and i started a strength and conditioning program this was in the late 70s which is uh Kind of, uh, not many out there like that, but luckily I, I was about a half hour from Michigan State and I would meet with their uh, strength coach and I was already taking classes in exercise phys, one class for a semester while, while teaching. And he, I'd go visit, he says, you know, Bill, you're the only high school coach that comes around. And he wanted, he, he had the possibility of hiring his first grad assistant in strength and conditioning. And I could go back full time, uh, finish my degree and get some experience. And so that's kind of what happened. We started winning in football uh, at the high school level. And and I learned right then I, I enjoyed developing athletes a lot more than the X's and O's of the game. And so it was a nice step right to Michigan State. And I finished my degree that year. And this doesn't happen anymore. But this was uh, spring of 1981. That summer, there were two openings at the college level: Washington State and Mississippi State. And I, this doesn't happen in this day and age. But I went from a grad assistant to the head strength and conditioning coach at a Pac-10 school, which is unheard of. Um, and it, even at the college level, things were brand new and. They had not been to a bowl game in 50 years, 1931 Rose Bowl. And the athletes bought into a basic fundamentally sound program and we started winning. And that got me to the University of Miami where five years, 55 and five, two national championships, which was a pretty amazing run. Uh, and then the heat came along and, you know, we were rolling at the U, but... I had one assistant, 18 teams. And the heat came along and uh rest is history.
0: Wow. Jumping on with an expansion team in the NBA, and you'd never had that experience, you'd think you got thrown into the fire there, but really you got thrown into the fire a lot earlier. Jumping from a GA to a heading up a program at the division one level. That's uh that's really impressive. You know, think about we think about leadership progressions or moving up through our career. and a lot of us, we want to be head strength and conditioning coaches and and lead a program. But there was probably a lot of learning during that time where where you were uh, managing all those different teams and programs. One thing that jumped out to me, you mentioned your background in physical education. And that's a theme that comes through when I talked to when I talked to Boyd, when I talk to coaches that were around, during the early stages of of our profession, physical education was a huge part of that. What is it about physical education that provided a great framework for strength and conditioning to build on? And do you think that's something that coaches today maybe miss out on because they're coming out of more exercise science-based schools?
1: Uh, I like the combination. and It's interesting because I was teaching elementary phys ed and I just loved developing young kids, I'd see little overweight kids and become their friend and help them. And you know, you could see their confidence just go sky high when the PE teacher was paying attention to them and then they became pretty good athletes. So I, I really enjoyed uh, working at that level, uh, watching kids grow uh, physically and mentally. Now you mentioned Boyd, a quick story so i'm coaching high school football and we have this strength and conditioning program i had no idea there was a profession and i read in a newspaper they talked about the all-american strength team this was either 1978 or 79 and they talked about boyd and the nsca and i thought wow i can't believe it there is a profession this is what i want to do so i reached out to boyd and he sent me a letter and he suggested I meet with the guy at Michigan State, which I already had done, but uh, I still have that letter from Boyd.
0: That is so cool. I think about that a lot. I think about the progression of coaches from years past to where we're at today. I know when I got into the profession, early 2000s, exercise science, kinesiology programs were really on the rise. You know, I went to Springfield College where it was historically a physical education school, but a lot of strength and conditioning coaches have come out of there, and that has, over time, become a strength and conditioning major and a strength and conditioning grad program. So how coaches are getting trained today is a lot different than maybe in the past, but you had to be very resourceful just to find the profession and and network with those who were, who were doing it. And there was probably few and far between. Uh, but really, it's really, it's really interesting to think back about where our profession is, but it really hasn't been that long.
1: You're right. And, and because my exercise is back then, it was mainly cardiac rehab. It wasn't strength and conditioning, but all my electives, they let me gear towards strength and conditioning. And I'd go out and I'd, I'd go visit the Detroit Lions, the Chicago Bears, and Talk to their strength coaches and write up papers. so i I tried to gear everything towards strength and conditioning because it wasn't there. I kind of had to make my own path.
0: And it's interesting. we can talk about this a little more later, but that's in a way where sports science is now. You know, strength and conditioning has paved the way for a lot of people to work in sport. And there's a lot of positions out there that years ago there weren't. Well, there's an emerging group of, Positions in sports science, you see that in the professional teams. We see that in the college teams. That's really growing. But even 10, 15 years ago, it was hard to find degree programs dedicated to to those areas. But I do want to ask you about some of those progressions that you've seen. Uh, I know technology's changed a lot since the 70s, 80s when you started. Uh, Just during your time with the heat, you've probably seen so many changes happen. You know, what are some of the biggest differences today in the field that you see from from the early days
1: yeah with all the um, testing now with the force platforms and the cameras we didn't have any of that back then in fact at washington state i wanted to in the 80s bench press was king and i got to washington state and everybody had big bench presses but that doesn't help you run faster or jump higher. So I was trying to get across um, the importance of leg, hip, core strength, but we didn't have the testing how how to test for power back then we didn't have that. So I I came up with a quotient called the, the power quotient and it was just the square root of their vertical jump in inches times the square root of their body weight in pounds. And basically it was just a number where I could rank people. So a a 200 pound running back with a 34 inch vertical, does he have more power than a 300 pound lineman with a 27 inch vertical? It it would rank everybody. And so we did that. And to my surprise, I, I put the top 15 up on the board. And of those top 15, Uh, six were on the football team, all six were starters, four were all Pac-10. I think seven on the track team were on the board because of those seven, they were back-to-back Pac-10 champs, number two in the country behind Arkansas, their best athletes were up on the board. And then uh, the starting power forward for basketball and the heavyweight Pac-10 champ uh, in wrestling. So of the top 15, Everyone had great success, and what that did is open the eyes of the other athletes of the importance of the Olympic lifts and squats compared to the bench. You want a strong upper body, but that's not number one. So I was into that early on. Now technology can handle all that, so it's come a long ways.
0: Yeah, you had to create the tools that you were using Because the field really wasn't there yet. The technology wasn't there. The science, like you said, was based around aerobic exercise, physiology, cardiac rehab. Uh, Yeah, very medical knowledge base around performance training, uh, which wasn't much of a thing at the time. And as that evolved, you know, I think of your history with the NSCA. You've been to a lot of conferences over the years. In the early 2000s, 90s, early 2000s, that was a huge time in research. We had Dr. Kramer coming from endocrinology into exercise science and all the publications, Mike Stone, and the many researchers, right, that have have really enhanced the field. So, went from a time where you were creating any and every tool you could to do the best you could in that environment to now we have so much information. Uh, You may not be a huge social media guy, but coaches today have so much access to other coaches, opinions, posts on research articles, and we have to be really great filters of information today, which it's talk about just the opposite end of the spectrum from, we have almost, almost too much information to handle. Is that something you notice during this yes. time?
1: Yes. Yeah. There's so much out there that it it's pulling people away from the fundamentals a little bit. Yeah, I get back to what works and pick and choose, but there's so much. I, I see people getting off track a little bit uh, because the fundamentals are tried and true.
0: Yeah, I think the... I I feel like the science really hasn't changed that much in 20, 30 years, but our access to some of these metrics and testing, like you mentioned, has given that science new life and new, and we have new access to just how we look at power, vertical jump or all these. And so uh, it is actually a really healthy exercise for coaches today to go back on some of that research because, uh, those are the origins I like. I love when coaches get on here and be like, hey, we stick to the basics, the fundamentals, yeah. you know, and, and it really goes a long way. want to ask you, you know, over a lot of years, you probably had thousands of programs that you implemented uh, with the heat. But, you know, what were your core principles that you stuck to with training? Uh, total
1: body balance training with emphasis on legs, hips and core is kind of what I've always got into. And I've got a little story. My my first year with the Heat, our very first draft pick was Ronnie Sykley, And Ronnie is 6'10 center out of Syracuse. So we're an expansion team the very first year. And we went with the youth movement. So he's starting as a rookie and he's not physically prepared. And he got beat up that first year with all these big, huge, strong centers in the NBA, he was 6'10", 230 pounds. But to Ronnie's credit, the next off season, he did not miss a workout. He, was, he stayed in Miami all summer long and trained, and he went from 230 to 252, stayed at 8% body fat, increased his vertical jump three inches, in the next year, he was voted the most improved player in the NBA. So that helps with longevity when your very first pick. Uh, strength yeah. and conditioning was so important. It opened the eyes to the heat, what this position can do for athletes. So that was huh. pretty amazing.
0: What At that time, was, was it an uphill battle to be a strength coach in the NBA? Was it – I know in baseball – the reputation of strength coaches when I got in really wasn't all that great. And did you did you have a lot of convincing to do that your role was valuable? Well,
1: Ronnie came in for his first workout and he said, I'm here to work out, but I don't squat. I said, squat day's tomorrow, but uh, we're going to get a good workout in today. And I said, we squat differently here. That's all I said. Next day he comes in. How do you squat differently here? I said, we squat correctly. Well, he didn't want to squat, but it opened his mind and he started working at it. And that's how he made all his improvements was squat was one of the big lifts that got him bigger and stronger and jumping higher. So um, yeah, back then there weren't many, two or three full-time strength coaches in the NBA at the time I came in. crazy it was just at the ground floor but we also had another rookie who had to start he was our two guard and he didn't like to squat and this is the start of the second year we're it's in november we played at home against it was still the showtime lakers the lakers come in we're an expansion team they beat us by 40 and the next day in practice, the head coach says this two guard. He says, what happened last night? He says, Oh, Bill made me squat. My legs were sore. <laughs> Whoa. Now I'm pig headed and I didn't make him squat, but he threw me under the bus and the coach wanted to fire me on the spot. Um, but oh, man. he cooled down this guy. So you got to pick and choose your battles and I wouldn't have been so pig headed now. I'd start with goblets, but I didn't know about goblet squats back then, but I would have stopped started on that or leg press or but had to get a bar on his back, but he didn't want to do it, so he threw me under the bus. So you, you gotta pick and choose your battles, but I survived it.
0: That's that's a good story. I think a lot of coaches can, can connect with that one of yeah. something maybe doesn't go the way you you hope hope it would, or yeah. Wow. I want to ask you about the MBSCA, an organization you've been a part of and an advocate for, for, for a number of years. Uh, when we were talking at the coaches conference, you came right up and we started talking about the RSCC program and how valuable you think it is for the MBA, but for professionals in the field in general Uh, if you would speak to high certification standards and why that is important in our profession.
1: I think that's the most important certification out there because you have to be a true strength and conditioning coach to get that certification. So uh, over the years, different NBA teams would hire a physical therapist to be the strength coach or hire an athletic trainer to be the strength coach. Now, I've worked with a lot of great physical therapists and great athletic trainers but they're not strength and conditioning coaches and the RSCC to get that you have to have been full-time strength and conditioning coach uh, for two years. And a physical therapist doesn't have that athletic trainer doesn't have that. So with that certification, you're getting a true qualified strength and conditioning coach. And I do know that right now um, in the NBA, The collective bargaining agreement, you have to have CSCS, but anybody can get that. But the Players Association, I hear, is pushing for the RSCC, which would be wonderful because we know it's a qualified strength and conditioning coach.
0: Yeah, it, it is encouraging. And we at the NSCA, we have relationships with PBS, CCS, MLB, PFSCCA for the NFL. We have a new partnership with SCAF, the Hockey Pro Strength Coach Organization, and and also the MBSCA for the NBA coaches. And every one of these organizations is at a different point in their history. The leagues, uh, uh, they're all a little bit different. But the one thing they have in common is that we are all fighting for dedicated Strength and conditioning coach roles, and by dedicated, uh, not in terms of just effort, but dedicated in the role as a strength and conditioning coach, and not uh, not having to do two jobs as an assistant athletic trainer or strength and conditioning coach, because we know those are both full time jobs in themselves, and when we. Th- When we think about the value of strength and conditioning and how important it is, we know that it requires someone doing that on a full-time basis. And that's really the basis of us at the NSCA pairing up with these organizations to however we can support the collective bargaining process, support the coaches who are doing the advocating for this process. Our SEC has been a great vehicle in professional baseball, uh, MBA, we're hoping to have some progress really soon on, on that. Like you're mentioning, uh, to advance the coaching profession, and uh, I, I was really excited when you came up to me and asked me about the RSCC program. We were, of course, at the the RSCC reception, and it was a really, uh, I, I had a great time. We were hanging out with Chip Sigmund and Jerry Palmieri, and uh, yeah, just a lot of great coaches coming to our conferences right now. I want to ask you about your history with the NSCA? Um, you've been NSCA loyal for a lot of years. What's it? What's it meant to you? What's the NSCA uh, been to it's you? It's been years?
1: it's been huge. They've been they've been there for me all these years. I first my first NSCA conference was in Kansas City, 1981, and then I went 38 straight. It didn't miss until COVID. So uh, Boyd told me I'm the second longest behind him, but I made 38, but then COVID hit, but then I got to the the one in January in Charlotte um, back again. So uh, every year I went, you get to connect with guys from around the country. So that's amazing, but I'd always pick up something at every conference uh, where I could be a better strength and conditioning coach. So, yeah, the NSEA has been there from the beginning and made a huge difference with my career.
0: That's awesome. I want to ask you you've worked with hundreds of coaches over the years, you've met a lot of students, your son is in the field. Mm-hmm. You know, what qualities do you think set apart a strength and conditioning coach today? And What do you, what advice would you give to students or aspiring coaches as they pursue the field?
1: Well, as I get, you get your degree in exercise bid, but somewhere kinesiology, you get your degree, you get your certifications, uh, get as much experience as possible, um, either as a GA intern, work for free, whatever it is, you need that experience. And then you need to network, network, network. But the big thing is you got to show the athletes you care. They uh, connect with them at the personal level, but when they know you care and you're willing to work, that's the other thing, outwork everybody. If you show them you care and outwork everybody, you're on your way. And then along with that is be a lifetime student because there's so much out there with research. Continue to be a student. And work as hard as you can, and you'll love it.
0: That's awesome. Want to have some fun? You've worked with some really, really great athletes over the years. Uh, Shaq, LeBron. Uh, it's it's impressive. You know what makes those guys different? I don't think everybody. I don't think everybody gets that opportunity to work. Get that much exposure with the elite of the elite. You know what? I'm sure you have some cool stories. I don't want to put you on the spot, but uh, you know, what do you see with those guys?
1: Yeah, it, it's amazing—just the size, the speed, the attitude. The the to get to that level, they have the total package. It, it, it's just amazing uh, to see on a daily basis the great ones and how they take care of business and truly professional. Um, one of my favorite stories though, is <clears throat> we had an athlete come from University of Alabama. Their, their head coach, Wimp Sanderson, I believe, was good friends with our head scout. And he asked, would you give this guy a tryout? Well, he comes in, he's 6'8", 185. Outworks everybody. We're a young team. This was, I think, our second year in the league. He made our team because he outworked everybody. But in the summertime, he'd come to me, and this is Keith Askins. Keith would check with me at the start, at the end of the season. When's your vacation, Bill? Because I take mine at the same time, so I'll always be here. So 185 the first year, then 194, then 205. Every year for five years, he had to make the team. One-year contract, he'd outwork everybody, and he ended up being 6'8", 220, good defensive wing player, could knock down the three and play nine years with it. It was the longest undrafted at that time uh, when he came in. Those are the stories I really like, is he's willing to work and get better. And then you got the genetic freaks in Shaq and LeBron that just take it to the next level.
0: That is cool. I, I think it it's really impressive. Uh, I tell this story a lot because I'm, I'm not a basketball guy, but I went to a I went to a G League game a while back, and there was three seven footers on the on the court, and I'd never seen a seven footer in my entire life, so I had to go courtside and check that out. But I think the NBA is just so impressive when you see how massive these human beings are and just how athletic they are uh i I think it's uh it's a testament to you over a lot of years just learning your craft and in building a program it's obviously very unique in our profession to be with a franchise through its entire history and obviously your family is very embedded in that organization and it's pretty special what you've what you've done and I know being a keynote at our conference that was that was something we we're really happy about you being there and uh, yeah, Bill, we just want to let you know, we appreciate you.
1: Well, thank you. That's good to hear because uh, NSCA has been great for me. So that's, that's wonderful to hear. Thank you. And one of the good things with um, the loyalty is I was very fortunate I'm with a very loyal professional team because they're not always like that, but having Pat Riley as my boss is a, a basketball coach that really believed in strength and conditioning is huge um, because that's not always the case. I've heard horror stories around the league with coaches don't want their guys to lift and whatever, but Pat was a big believer and he's a loyal guy and an amazing boss. So that made for a great career.
0: Yeah. This episode, we went from working with uh elementary PE to all the way up to Shaq and LeBron. So there's a, a wide spectrum there. I think it's uh, it's pretty it's pretty cool to think about uh, all the growth in the field over so many years. And I think one of the huge takeaways for everyone tuning in is that you know no matter how successful you are in this profession, uh, continuing to grow, continuing to give back, continuing to attend conferences and events and network and and build relationships with other professionals and help the field grow. Uh, there's a lot of value to that. Uh, Bill, I have to say, when I was in grad school, we actually used the book you wrote <laughs> on uh, in one of our grad school classes at Springfield College. So that takes me back. And that was really my first exposure to, to your career at that time. And um, yeah, really appreciate you being on today.
1: Sounds great. It was fun. Eric, the back and forth has been wonderful, so I appreciate that. Yeah, it's
0: it's a lot of fun. I never I went into coaching, never thought I'd be a podcast host. So <laughs> so here we are. Yeah. But uh, for anyone tuning in wants to reach out, what's the best way to get in touch?
1: Probably email dot uh, heat.com.
0: Perfect. We will include that in the show notes if any one of our listeners want to tune in. Thanks again for being with us. To our listeners, we appreciate you. And we also appreciate Sorenex Exercise Equipment for being a sponsor on this podcast.
1: Hi, coaches. I'm Leanne Blinn, the 2022 NSCA College Strength Conditioning Coach of the Year. You just listened to an episode of the NSCA Coaching Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to hear important conversations about the strength conditioning profession. Don't miss an upcoming episode. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play and comment on some of the highlights at NSCA's Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. You can also hear full episodes on the NSCA's newest channel, nsca.tv. This was the NSCA's coaching podcast. The National Strength and Conditioning Association was founded in 1978 by strength and conditioning coaches to share information, resources, and help advance the profession. Serving coaches for over 40 years, the NSCA is the trusted source for strength and conditioning professionals. Be sure to join us next time.